Hello, uh, good evening and um, welcome to the Irish Times Book Club with myself, Martin Doyle and Tom Morris. Um, we're going to start off this evening with um, a reading from, from Tom. Uh, Tom, if you'd like to introduce. Um, so for people who don't know, um, this story collection uh, is set in my hometown of Caffili in South Wales and it features 10 stories. But there's one story which doesn't take place in Caffili. Um, it takes place in this fine city where I take some boys from Caffili and I bring him on a stag weekend to Dublin. So I thought, while in Dublin, I'll read a bit from that. Um, the story's in three parts, Friday night, Saturday and Sunday. Um, I'm going to read a bit from Saturday. All you need to know about Friday is that they descended onto Temple Bar and chaos ensued. So um, I'm going to just pick up from... Um, they've just gone on an outing to Croke Park which was described by one of the boys as the most depressing idea for a stag do ever. Um, so they're coming back into town. Um, and I'm just going to throw you into it, so we'll go from there. They'll get a taxi back into town, then they'll walk around and look at things. Larry will be in hysterics when he sees the place called Abracababra, insisting that one of the boys take his photo next to the sign. They'll walk in a group, taking up half the width of Westmoreland Street, wondering what the hell goes on in the massive white building with the huge columns that look as if they belong in Rome. It's a bank, Rob's father will say, and Big Mike will go, no wonder things are so fucking expensive. When they pass Trinity College, Rob's father will say, there's meant to be a nice library in there. He read about it in his guidebook. And Gareth will point ahead at Hucknall and Larry as they eye up a group of Spanish-looking tourists and he'll say, I've got a feeling the boys aren't really in the mood for a good read. Before they know it, they'll be in Temple Bar again. In Gogatees, they'll order bouquets of Guinness, and Hucknall will insist that they should have gone to the Guinness factory instead of Croke Park. Big Mike will say, if you know so much, why don't you be fucking best man? And the boys will do a handbag's ooh, and laugh until their already aching kidneys hurt. A greying man on a guitar will sing Whiskey in the Jar and the Wild Rover, and when the boys request Delilah, he'll oblige, and all the boys will sing Shout Along, all the while pushing more pints in front of Rob. Rob will be singing loudest now. He'd have decided that tonight's the night he's going to go properly for it. Leaving Croke Park, he'd have felt something stirring. He'll told his father he was ready to have one more final night of going nuts. Gareth will sing along too, but he'll be thinking of a small bedroom at home, of a journey back to Wales tomorrow night. By the way, Big Mike will tell the group when talk turns to eating, before we go for food, we've got to go back to the hostel. How come, worse man, Huckle will say. Costumed for tonight, but and if you call me worse man one more time, I'm going to knock you out, you ginger prick. Sorry, worse man. The boys will be awkward, quiet, and Rob's father will ask where they're going to get the costumes from. And Big Mike will smile now. He'll say, why the hell do you think I checked in a suitcase? A fucking potato, Huckner will say. Are you fucking serious? They'll all be back in the room, and Big Mike will have his suitcase open on the bed, the bag bulging with bumpy, creamy brown potato costumes. Aye, Big Mike will say. Got a problem with that as well, have you? Peacock will take a costume from a suitcase and place it over himself in a the mirror. These going to make us look fat, you reckon? No way am I wearing a potato costume, Huckner will say. We're in Ireland, for fuck's sake. Exactly, Big Mike will go. They love potatoes. Dirty sweet potatoes. And all the boys will shake their heads, will say all sorts. Are they all the same size, Larry will go. All the same, Big Mike will say. Except for Rob's. He's wearing something else. Oh, and you all owe me 15 quid. Rob will beam, his teeth visible, a smile in his voice. What the fuck you got me? A plunging arm into the suitcase depths, 
and Big Mike will pull out something black in cellophane. Wordless, he'll hand the package to Rob. Rob will tear at the cellophane. There'll be some kind of dress, green and orange and hideous. It'll take a moment for Rob to click. He's been given an Irish woman's dance costume. There'll be white socks to go with it too. River dance, Big Mike will scream, doing an odd high knee jig on a hostel floor. And all the boys will laugh, and, huckle, and Huckman will say, Fair play, that's a good one. And once they see how Rob looks the biggest tit, they will mind dressing up like potatoes. At least we'll all be warm, Rob's father will say. They'll drink the cans left over from last night, and Gareth will find himself at the point of drunkenness where he wants to fight. He'll offer arm wrestles to everyone. Using Big Mike's suitcase for a table and at Gallop's insistence, they'll take turns to lie on the floor and arm wrestle each other. And when he's not competing, Gallop will come up behind Larry, give him a bear hug and lift him off the ground. He'll do the same to Hucknall and Peacock and Rob. They'll be laughing at first, but by the end they'll be properly pushing him off. In Temple Bar, with the boys dressed like potatoes and Rob dressed like a female Irish dancer, but wearing his own brown wrangler boots, they'll argue over where to go for dinner. Foreign girls with dark hair and dinner menus will approach, trying to coax them into their restaurants. Passers-by will cheer and laugh, and tourists, German, American, Chinese, will ask for photos with all the boys, and they'll begin to get into it, begin to feel like Dublin's central attraction. We should start charging, Larry will say, as Rob poses for a photo of a girl from Cincinnati. Two quid per photo, what do you reckon? At some point of the night, someone will say that the euro feels like monopoly money and everyone will agree. After 40 minutes of wandering and arguing, they land on Dame Street at an empty Chinese restaurant. Never look at sign when it's empty, Rob's father will say. But they'll have been walking around for too long and be, and be too hungry to go elsewhere. Before they've even ordered, Hucknell will suggest they spit the bill. Hucknell is an accountant. Hucknell can afford to save such things. And for reasons beyond them, to save hassle, perhaps, everyone will agree. They'll order pints immediately, but the food will take deliberation. They'll all ask each other what they're going to order, as if each boy's afraid of getting the wrong dish, of getting the whole eating out thing wrong. They'll wind up the waitress who takes the orders, ask her if she'll be joining them for starters, and then they'll make her stand at the table for photos of them all. The potato costumes will be clunky and chunky, so the chairs have to be set some distance from the table, and Gareth will find out to eat. He has to lean forward, his back arch like a capital C. His arms will be free, though. You know that, at least. When you buy him a house with your missus, then? Lally will ask. We'll see, Gallif, will say, taking a swig from his pint. No rush, is there? I heard she wants someone by the summer, Big Michael will say. Carly talks too fucking much, Gallif will say, and the table will laugh, giddy. Gallif will say, what? It's true. She shouldn't talk about stuff like that with other people. I don't know what's wrong with her. Peacock will be smiling like a bag of chips brimming over as if he can't believe they're allowed to slag off their partners publicly. You'd think he could handle having a girlfriend if he could slag it off all the time. <laughs> Gareth will finish off his pint and call for waiters for another. Rob, his arm beginning to itch in the dance dress, will be watching Gareth's left leg. Under the white tablecloth, it'll be shaken. The boys will chant football songs as they eat. We will call stories from school, from holidays and from other stag trips. And all the boys will laugh as Larry pretends to cry and goes, I'm so hungry! In imitation of the time Hucknall passed out in Malaga and woke to find his wallet had been stolen. When the boys found him, he'd been walking the streets for three hours and he was a quivering, starving mess. At some point, some food will be thrown at someone. A man and a woman will sit down at a table across from the boys, then promptly leave. Of all the boys, Rob's father will be the only one to notice. 
but the restaurant manager won't mind the noise because the boys are buying so many drinks and extra portions of egg fried rice and chips. All right then, Rob will shout across the table, raising his glass. It'll take Big Mike and Hucknell to quiet everyone down. I should have done this earlier, Rob will shout, but I, I just want to say thanks for all this. I know you're all wankers, but I've known you all so long. He's going to dump Rachel and marry us, Gallif will yell, and all the boys will cheer. Dump the girl, will come a chant from Laddie, and Gallif will shout it too, and they'll both chant the words, bang in the table. Hucknell will tell him to shut up, and Big Mike will be annoyed, because that's his job, really, not Hucknell's. Rob's father will smile and tell his son to go on the speech. If I could, Rob would say, I'd marry you all. A toast at us, Gallif will shout, and though his glass will be empty, he'll raise it anyway, and Rob won't realise he never said what he wanted to say. That was great, Tom, and very funny. Um, try not to suck all the humour and oxygen out of the stories uh, <laughs> over the next half an hour. Thank you. Um, can we start off maybe by asking something you know, basic and technical? Um, you can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, can you? Yeah, we'll see, yeah. That story is striking. One of the reasons it's striking is that it's all told in, in the future tense. Yeah. Um, why does that work? It works, but why does it work? Um, I mean, it sounds a bit presumptuous to me to say it works, but it felt it it felt that it worked. And what happened was, when I tried to write the story to begin with, I mean, the challenge was to have so many characters. And when I started it, it was, in the first draft, it was such a boring opening. It just began, you know, like, once upon a time, there were 12 boys who went to Dublin on a stag trip. And it just seemed like it couldn't quite get... I like the pro prose and form to some way engender the theme of the work or to give a feel or spirit of... And I want that in the language. I just couldn't get it. It felt like a very kind of um, 2D and a very slow approach. And I was just thinking of different ways to do it. And then um, I was walking from a friend's house, and we'd just been talking about writing, nothing in particular. And I was just walking home, I was thinking about all the different ways you can tell a story, third person, second person. And I keep thinking, is there a fourth person? Is there a fifth person? I was thinking about different tenses. And I thought, oh, the future tense. And I'd never read anything in a future tense. And then suddenly, as soon as I had that line like the first one starts in the future tense, the story just came and it came really quickly in a way. The stories don't often come to me, but once I find a form, I do feel I can plough ahead. But I think if it is effective, I think what it does give is a sense of inevitability. Um, and for a long time, I, I'd avoid going on my friend's dag trips because I knew what was going to happen. <laughs> there was a sense of inevitability. And... Um, and then they were going to have a stag trip in Barcelona. And at my time, uh, my girlfriend was living in Barcelona. So I thought, OK, I'll do this stag trip. It'll be like a part-time stag trip. I can join late, <laughs> leave late. You know, I can just about get away with it. And everything that I thought would happen did happen. So then it just seemed to work then in that way. Um, I was just talking to someone outside. Um, on Sunday, Wales play Ireland in rugby. And often my friends come over from Wales, even if they don't have tickets for the game, they just come and they park in Temple Bar. And it's the only time in the year when I go to Temple Bar. Um, and it's just remarkable. I mean, the first time they came over when they were 19, and they went to O'Shea's around the corner, and they didn't leave. They were there all weekend. And they came with a Welsh society from college, and they made the barman put on Tom Jones all, all, <laughs> all night. Um, and they're paying twice as much they would pay for a drink at home. And my friend said to me after like three nights, he's like, oh, I love Dublin, it's great. I'm like, what are you all about? You haven't seen any of it. Like, you've just been paying six quid for a pint and singing Welsh songs all night. Um, but it kind of gives that excuse, you know, coming here, you can go 
well, that's kind of going off the topic a little bit, but um, again, I was in London this morning, I was flying over, and on the plane was a, was a stag trip from, from London. You just know, you know, they're going to be in town now, getting up to whatever, whatever chaos. But um, I feel far more sympathetic towards them now, having written the story. It kind of has engendered empathy in me somehow, yeah. Was it important for you, like this, you know, it's one of the striking things about the collection is that they're all set in Kerfilly, yeah. with the exception of this one, except yeah. it's Kerfilly on tour, obviously. Yeah. Was it important uh, for you, having lived in Dublin for the last 10, 12 years, having studied here, made your career here, yeah. to have at least one story set in your adopted home? Um, I had these very lofty ideas at one point, and I thought, you know what? I'll finish the collection with a story in Dublin, as if to suggest, you know, that's where the work will be going now. I'll be writing in Ireland. Um, so I think it was in the back of my mind that I wanted to write about it. And I felt in order to write about a place, I need to feel like I know it. Um, and I probably know Dublin better than I know Cardiff now. You know, because I moved here when I was 19, I'm 30. So I've kind of, if I have come of age, I've come of age here. Um, so I felt comfortable in it and I, um, and once I started writing it, I knew I could have fun. If you take characters who don't know this city, then the narrator can have fun as well in terms of the knowingness and what the narrator knows. And sometimes it's, he's, the narrator in that story is close to the boys and sometimes it seems to have a little bit of knowledge that they don't have in terms of what they're going through. Um, but this is in my mind because I started writing a novel and I've set that in Caffili again. I would like to write about Ireland, but I think to do it authentically... I couldn't do it from a point of view of someone who was, who was Irish. It'd feel, it wouldn't feel my place to do that. So then, inevitably, it'd be about a Welsh person in Ireland, and then it'd be, mm, that's a little bit autobiographical. So <laughs> I, I need to work out how I would go about it, and this was a nice way of getting into it, I think. One of the things that struck me is, like, Wales and Ireland are superficially, in some ways, they're, they're, they're sort of similar, um, as in Celtic, and they had their own language and kind of colonised or however you want to put it by, by England, whatever. Like one of the things that, that struck me that I haven't read, um, like we've published lots of stuff about um, the collection over the last few weeks, mm. but one little tidbit is the fact that you actually um, um, studied in Welsh up until the age of 18, yeah. so you're bilingual. Yeah, um, um, I was educated, I went to Welsh language nursery, Welsh language primary school, Welsh language secondary school. I did all my exams Welsh. We learned French through Welsh. We had a teacher from Brittany. She, could, she was fluent in French, Breton, Welsh, English. It was just, you know, ridiculous. Um, but that was important for me because it meant I got to study literature twice. You know, so there's... Um, when Welsh language schools are propagandising about their importance, they say, in terms of the literature side, it really does kind of push back. You're studying Welsh literature and English literature, so you're looking at a lot more... Poetry especially, there's a rich tradition in Wales in Welsh language poetry. And in my teens, I did try to write in Welsh, and I wrote really awful Welsh language poetry. And especially when I moved to Dublin, I was writing poetry of longing in the oh. homeland. And, and I remember I, tra I drew a map of kind of you know, Wales and Ireland of the distance, and, you know, I'll never leave you behind, Wales. You know, and it's very kind of... Um, but I found when I was writing in Welsh, it was in a register that wasn't my own, because the stuff I'd read had all this kind of religious imagery. I wasn't religious at all, but suddenly when I was writing, I kind of um, adopted it. But when I came to study in Trinity, I did English philosophy, and the philosophy essay I wrote was the first time I'd ever written an essay in English that wasn't for English literature. So um, I'm not going to say it was, you know, particularly strainful, but there were times I was reaching for words and I didn't quite know what they were. But um, 
yeah, I think the Welsh language, I think one of the reasons why the language is stronger in Wales and perhaps Irish is here is because that's kind of all we've got for identity. Uh, we don't have much with <coughs> you guys. We're kind of building a <laughs> building a country, and we were just trying to fight them off. And mm -hmm. we had a language as a means of making us distinct. Yeah. And like you know, people say that Irish writers, the the way that they write, um, the language that they use, mm -hmm. is directly or indirectly influenced by by Hiberno Irish or the fact yeah. that you know. Um, the Irish language roots um, of of the nation. Can you see that in, in your own writing? Um, Hannah Griffiths, your editor, who's yeah. also Welsh, she said that she recognised, you know, inflections, whatever dialect or ways of speaking. Yeah, I think that it's the rhythms in similar to Irish. You know, the sentences the sentences get mangled and put backwards because initially they were coming from the Welsh language. So you put the word the words seem to be in the wrong place in English. Um, and I, at first, I kind of didn't realise that when I was living in Wales. And having been away and then going back and just walking around a supermarket, you'd hear things and go, oh, of course, that is how I used to express that sentence. Um, and that was an important thing for me was to get that right in there as well, because you don't realise how ways of speaking kind of seeps into your own ways of talking. Um, so, like, in Ireland, you'd say things like... Um, will we go to the pub? Whereas, if you say that in Wales, will we go to the pub? We go, I don't know, will we? <laughs> you know, as opposed to, like, mm -hmm. shall we? Mm -hmm. And then I had in one story someone saying, will we? And my sister was like, that's Irish, that's mm -hmm. not Welsh. And I hadn't even realised. It's just something I'd taken into my language. So it took, especially on the editing stage, going through and just really paying really close attention and, and not wanting to, like, camp it up and, and kind of mm -hmm. Welshify it, but just yeah. ensure that it seemed authentic and correct to the ear. Would it be meaningful for you for the collection to be translated in, into Welsh? Would that be something that you would consider doing it yourself? I wouldn't do it myself. If someone wanted to, they'd be very, <laughs> very welcome to it. I, m I remember once I was saying to my mum, you know what, I'm going to write the Welsh-English novel. It's going to be in both languages. It's going to really show what it is, you know, kind of in my upbringing, because I was spending the day in Welsh. I mean, I'd go home and speak in English. And it's like, you know, it's going to be a really important thing. She went, my mum said, OK. But the only people who will be able to read out will be both fluent in Welsh. I was like, oh, you're right. <laughs> like, so it's not really going to um, change much for um, No, I wouldn't have. What's odd as well is um, I had a stammer growing up, and I still stammer now, and you find ways of avoiding it. So I know, for example, like earlier I said, this city we're living in, because I stammer on my Ds, and particularly the city we're living in. So I, I, I need a run-up to it if I'm going to say the word. Um, but in Welsh, I stammer really badly. And it's like I'm stuck in my former 18-year-old self when I stopped speaking Welsh and I wasn't quite as confident. Mm -hmm. So it's a really odd thing to feel you're not, yeah, kind of divided in that way. So I've, I have an unusual relationship with the language now in that regard. It's kind of, it feels like going back into a former self. There's one other, um, like the collection isn't showy at all, but um, there are a couple of stories where... You know, there is a, a clearly a deliberate um, exercise is being undertaken, and like fugue, for example, is all told in the in the second person. Could you talk a little bit about that as to you know why you chose to do that? Did yeah. it start out that way, or did it again evolve? Again, yeah, no, it's to do with evolving, and often for me, that's what the drafting is—is is trying to work out the first draft. You're kind of telling for me anyway. I'm telling myself the story. I'm telling, like, what is this? 
Um, and then you're trying to work out, okay, what's the best way to tell this story? What is this story about? And often you, I find I, I come in with one intention and I, it's not necessarily particularly interesting. And I actually find something over here to my left that I should be pursuing. Um, and then that story began, um, it's about a woman who's been living in Edinburgh and she's come back to Wales for Christmas and she feels kind of alien in her skin and appearance seem unfamiliar to her and it's all a little bit odd. And I'd written it in the first person. Um, and she was kind of complaining and moaning a bit and it was kind of hard to... I knew you wouldn't, the reader wasn't going to be on side. And I do think a lot about the reader. Um, once some couple of drafts in, I'm working out how is this going to be received and how can you play with expectations as well. Um, so I moved from first person to third person. Then I did, I think I invented a new one again, which was third person lowercase. <laughs> the whole story was in lowercase. <coughs> then, it became third, um, first per then it became a blog. Then I put in images from Google Maps, because I thought it was going to be like a children's book, because I had references to Bray Rabbit. So it, that story took two years and went through seven or eight drafts. Um, and then, I don't know why, I just tried it in second person, and it suddenly worked. It was creepy in a way, and it really kind of helped, again, talking about the divided self in some way. The second person seemed to kind of capture that ghostliness and that odd thing of when you are returning to somewhere which used to be familiar. It's not, you know, kind of who is the second person talking. And I used to hate the second person. I thought it was very um, funny, cloying and kind of unnecessary aggressive and kind of you, know, you, you, you. And I'm thinking, like, why are you telling me this, you know, <laughs> if it's me? Um, but then I read um, Laurie's More Collect and Self-Help that's in second person, and I really love those stories. And one of the best novels I've ever read, um, a book, called The Sound of My Voice by a Scottish writer called Ron Butlin, published in 1989. And now the synopsis doesn't sound like, it's not going to make you run out and buy it. Um, it's about a Scottish man who works in a biscuit factory. <laughs> um, but it's incredible and it's in the second person and, and, he pl and Ron Butlin plays of it. And he, he, he's a poet as well, so the language is so rich. And I just realise you can completely change the inflection by moving to first or second person or past or present tense, it changes it all. And this is kind of, like every story for me, by the end, I can say why it's written in that way. I didn't necessarily know when I went, in, went into it why. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first story, Bolt, is about a, about a young man who's working in a video store, was closing down, and he's, he moved, he was going out with a girl in college, and he moved down to Caffili to live with her in her mum's house. And then she left to London and broke up with him, but he's still living in my mum's house with her. And the shop's closing down in the video shop and he doesn't really know what he's, what's going on. I mean, the title really befits him. He doesn't know what he's doing. And the present tense really felt captured that because he's just going from moment to moment and he doesn't know and then the reader doesn't know. And it's a sense of, and it's, you know, and there's, a, there's a lethargy to it, but he's just been dragged along and how much, he's not, he himself isn't even clear how much of a, how much of his actions are motivated by his own desires. So it worked there. Mm -hmm. And then other stories made more sense to have, say, in past tense. But um, I, was, I was afraid of third person for a long time. I thought that was something pretentious. I thought it was very kind of um, Dickensian or something, you know, like who has a right to be an omniscient eraser? You know, who is this voice? But then I realized there's so much more you can do with it. Um, so it's fun. So I do spend a lot of time, particularly in the drafting and for me, yeah, as you say, it is a kind of, not a game at work, but I, the former concerns are interesting mm -hmm. to me.
one of the things about the collection that I really liked was the humour in it and humour is something that's very difficult to kind of pick apart and actually um, have anything left um, resembling. <laughs> yeah. um, like you, I know you slightly and you're quite a funny guy. Um, oh, thank you, yeah. Um, actually, did you bring the puppet? I didn't bring the puppet. I was, uh, um, yeah, that's a long story. Yeah. <clears throat> Could you, like, I remember um, reading the interview that we published um, yesterday in which you spoke about um, how you and Sam Call used to share a flat and how you used to sort of spend your, your free time lampooning um, other greater writers. Um, and then when you um, found yourself writing uh, your first novel, an abortive first novel, you suddenly discovered uh, yourself repeating those mistakes and it was a humorless exercise. Um, yeah. Could you tell us a bit about the, the importance of humour? I think you, you said that, you know, uh, you like to try and get a joke on every page. <laughs> yeah, laugh per minute, that's it, yeah, <laughs> the LPM. Um, I think what happened, so to go, yeah, to go back into that anecdote, I wrote a novel, it took me three years, between the ages like 24, 27, and it was just shit. Um, there's no other way about it. And I was, it was very portentous, there was a lot of flashbacks, a lot of people talking about the past, a lot of pregnant silences, and what I thought was, I thought if you slow things down, the ear would just be pregnant with meaning, you know, and even the twist of a door handle, that would just be, you know, the reader really, hmm, what's it, that's an object and a subject, you know, is it, <laughs> oof, you know, I was kind of getting very kind of soft, nausea kind of about it, and I was like, this is pretty profound, we're going to love it, and, um, but simultaneously, as I said, me and Sam Cole were writing these novels, complete we wrote three novels together, lived, this is how bored we were, um, just like, again, lampooning this portentous style. And then I was going to my own room and just writing <laughs> the same vein, because I thought that's what you had to do to be literary. And an analogy I used before was I thought the world of literature was a posh restaurant and you had to put on your nice clothes, you know, to get there. Um, and then, so I sent the novel to some friends and they were slow to get back. <laughs> and I was like, oh, there's something going on here. They don't seem to understand how subtle my prose is. Um, and, and what I realised was I'd been missing a part of an... It wasn't true to where I was from, and it wasn't true to how I lived life, it wasn't true to the people that I knew. And, you know, there's a, you know, I, there's a lot of misery in South Wales, but there's humour with it too, and I don't think that'd be hugely dissimilar to Ireland. Yeah. And if you don't have the humour, then to me it's kind of dishonest. And that's part of... People talk about what is voice and it's kind of attitude. And I realise, mm. not even necessarily my own voice, but the voice of the place comes of that attitude and it comes with taking your knocks with yeah. a light touch. I was thinking on the way in, like, you know, humour, like in the piece I wrote today, I was saying that, you know, a lot of your characters self-medicate with alcohol, yeah. but more healthily with humour. And I think humour in difficult circumstances can be part of someone's armoury. Yeah. So for you as a writer, it's part of your armoury. Yeah. Um, it can become a tick as well, you know, and you've got to kind of watch that. that oh, I find I have, you know, in terms of... Especially if a start was writing, if you didn't want to go somewhere painful, you just kind mm -hmm. of cover up with a joke and a character... And then again, you can persuade yourself going, I'm writing about a character who's in denial here. They can't face up to how bad they are. It's a big joke. And then you go on to the next bit. And all the time you're thinking, well, I know it's serious. And the reader knows it's serious. There's no need for me to go there. And we can all just get along this uncommunicated truth mm. that the work is signifying in a greater depth 
because we know I'm deep and you know you're deep and it'll be fine. Whereas I realise, no, you actually have to go there. Um, and so then sometimes knowing actually, you know, I might have a good joke here, but mm -hmm. it would be inappropriate, you know, and it should actually, this is where we need to nail it. But also I saw the things you can do with jokes, you can hide exposition, especially if you need to get over a fact. If you have someone tell it with a joke, hopefully you know, the reader has, has a laugh and they mm -hmm. go on. But um, George Saunders, in talking about the mechanics of a short story, he compares it to a, a little car on a scalectrix, and he says you just, you've got to get the reader around the track, essentially. You've got to get the car around the track. You need to keep them reading. You've got to keep them persuaded. And he said, you know, something like humour or an observation, it's a little gas station along the way, mm -hmm. and it just keeps them, it keeps them moving, yeah. Could we talk a bit about um, some of your influences? Maybe a way into that is the uh, the epigraphs at the start of your book, yeah. um, Donald Bartel and Richard Brightigan, yeah. who were also mentioned by uh, Philip Coleman, yeah. your former lecturer at Trinity, and the piece yeah. that he wrote for us, um, discussing you know having taught to those writers on your course. Yeah, um, I think firstly, I didn't want to read any Welsh writers because I was hugely jealous, and I didn't want to read anyone living because I was hugely jealous. Um, so dead writers, they were great, you know, you can have like a <laughs> bit of no fret. Um, for, for whatever reasons, I found my leanings were towards Irish and American fiction. But again, someone like Richard Brautigan, who, when people have heard of him, they generally kind of dismiss him as an odd hippie beat writer. But his stuff is, you know, it's, it's tragicomic, and that's what I'm interested in. So I think if something's pure... There's nothing I kind of puts me off more than hearing like a novel described as it's a comic novel, and you're like, ugh, or you know, a tragic novel, you're like, ugh. Whereas <laughs> it, like, again, it's back to it doesn't feel <clears throat> honest to me. With someone like Brautigan, he feels very truthful, very honest, and it's in it's to do with that kind of the alchemy of the comedy and the tragedy. Um, and Donald Barr for me was a great short story writer. I think in his lifetime he published 137 short stories, a hundred of those in the New Yorker. This is back in the day when you'd be on, you could be on a contract and the New York would pay you every year, regardless of, you know, if you gave him anything. Mm -hmm. or, if, or just to have first refusal on the stories. So he'd get $500 even though we weren't going to publish it. Um, and his, they collected his stories into a book called 60 Stories, and some of them only four or five pages, and each one is so different to another. And this idea of playing with form, he'd have a story which is just in a questionnaire, or, um, yeah, such bizarre premises but they come together and it's for humour and it's for the absurd as well and someone willing to confront the unknowable um, he had a, a, a collection of essays called Not Knowing and he says that's the key and the core of all art is the writer or the artist willing to go into a realm of not knowing and rather than coming to the work knowing what they're going to write about and then just setting it down in a kind of didactic way it's being willing to go to an, a blank page and go, well, let's see what I'll discover here. And for me, that was kind of, that was kind of fr thrilling, you know, and it's kind of, it's that ludic element, it's the idea of play, and there's a lightness of touch, but also a seriousness, which kind of um, attracted me. But, um, um, but more recently, I was like, okay, maybe stop reading dead people. Um, and then I discovered Joy, Joy Williams, who's another American short story writer, and she's extraordinary, um, Ali Smith, the Scottish writer again. Mm -hmm. So um, when I look at the people I'm interested in, it's those who kind of have that humour and that element of play, but also there's a seriousness under it. And I know they're using the humour mm -hmm. for a kind of for serious ends. Yeah. 
What about the influence of Joyce, say, um, like you did the collection, you edited the collection of short stories for Tramp Press, Dubliners yeah. 100, yeah. Um, basically commissioning writers, Irish writers, to, to do versions of um, Joyce's Dubliners. Yeah. Um, there's obviously some connections all set in one place, paralysis, stasis, yeah. etc. Um, I was drunk recently. Um, I suppose a great story begins as I was drunk recently, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and I was walking through town going, that was really cheeky of me to kind of edit that and follow you. Who the hell was I to try and, you know, go, you know, let's take on Joyce. So, yeah, let's do cover versions. Um, I loved Dubliners, but actually, in terms of Irish writers and short story writers especially, it was Frank O'Connor, who I really adored. And in university, I did my dissertation on him and obsessed with his idea of um, the lonely voice, what he talks about, and short stories being dominated by loneliness. And I think that's something that's been said a lot about my stories about there's a lot of lonely characters. But what's particularly interesting in, in him is that he's interested in the limits of language and how far language can go in trying to express emotions and psychological states. And, you know, at the end of his, which I think is one of the best short stories ever written, um, Guess of a Nation, you know, you've got the character there saying, you know, he didn't know... The, the characters they just couldn't express how they felt. And that's, and in all of his stories, there's always this ineffable moment where they just can't reach it. And then there's, that's, to me, it's a really interesting challenge when, when you're writing is how do you express, using language, the limits of, mm -hmm. of language. Um, and again, here's the humour. But um, Dubners was, was, you know, and it was important to me. But then I was also wary because, you know, a Debbie writer set in a story collection in one place. And at one point, I thought I could call the collection, you know, Kefillians or, you know, Kefillian <laughs> <laughs> ever stories and just go, you know, just really wear it and go, OK, yeah, Joyce, you know, we'll take it on. But, um, you know, I, I haven't really gotten on with the later Joyce. Um, I've yet to give Finnegan's Wake a go. Um, mm. But Dubliners really did kind of like shape my idea to begin with of what a short story can do. And I remember when I was 17 um, and I decided I wanted to come to, to Ireland, um, my father rented a cottage in Athlone and every day we'd go to another part of Ireland. We'd get in the car and two-hour drive, we'd go to Galway. And I think this is mentioned in the interview. Mm -hmm. And we'd get out and you go, OK, that's Galway, right, back in my car. <laughs> and we'd go over there. And then years later, I'd, I'd turn up in places in Ireland and go, it's uncanny, I feel like I've been here before <laughs> and I realised. But at the time, I was in the back of the car trying to read Dubliners. I just didn't get it until I read Araby. I didn't know what I was getting, but I just felt something. And that's one of the earliest encounters I had with kind of, you know, proper books where I realised that, you know, that an experience or an emotional state can be expressed and put down in fiction. You can go, I know that feeling. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's an incredible gift to give to readers, to be able to say, you know, to have those moments of identification. So I'm really interested in trying to offer or provide those. Of course... You know, today Joyce is, is loved and treasured and commodified, but back in the day, not everyone appreciated the way that he portrayed uh, his native city. How has your collection gone down in Kerfilly? I'm not sure anyone's read it. Um, <laughs> it was a really hairy moment where um, one of the stories I took a moment from a friend's life back home in Kerfilly, and he had confided this to a friend 
And then this friend told someone else, <laughs> who told someone else who told me, and I was like, I have to use that moment. Mm. And it's a bit in the castle view where um, a guy's late at night playing PlayStation, playing FIFA, and he loses the final, and he starts punching the carpet. And then there's blood on the carpet. He's like, shit, my wife's going to find it. And I just, and from and the whole story came from that. I built it all around there. And when I was writing the collection, it never occurred to me that like, this would happen and a book would come of it. And I turned up to the launch, and he's there, and he said, oh, I can't wait to read our story, Castle View. <laughs> and I turned, my, I turned to my sister, I said, it was never meant to go this far, you know? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and he texted me recently, he said he's, he's, he's enjoying the book, he's only got two stories to go, so Castle View is the second story, so if he's reading it in order, then he has read it, mm. and he's still texting me, so... Um, no, um, yeah, I mean... If I was from Caerphilly, I'd be, and you know, someone written this book, I'd be really pissed off. I'd go, well, no, you haven't done it right. And then it would motivate me to go, right, and I'll show you what Caerphilly's like. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be lovely now if actually someone else did go and write it and showed all the ways I was wrong and actually motivated that. Because um, in Wales, there aren't, there's nothing like what you have here in Ireland in terms of the literary scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were to ask people here to name a contemporary Welsh writer, you know, it'd be a bit of a struggle to get past free, I imagine. Um, so that's going off the point, isn't it, from the original question. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. No one from Cavillia <clears throat> has gotten to me yet. But no, no, but the point is, and it was important to me that I'd have different perspectives in the stories and so that it's less, this is what I think of Cavillia. I mean, you can kind of get a rounded feel of it and you have an older character and you have... Mm -hmm a young mother, or you have a middle-aged mother, you know, and you just, then you get to see Caerphilly in a 360 point of view, so hopefully you kind of cover the bases. I've yet to have any kind of shit put through my letterbox. Yeah. What did you mean? I read somewhere that you said that you, you actually, once the stories are written, you start thinking about the order of the story and what would be the best way to reveal Caerphilly. Yeah. By that, do you mean just the topography? Like the, the topography, yeah. So the first story, Bolt, begins at the bottom of town and it goes all the way up to Caerphilly Mountain. And I thought, it's just in my opening story, you've now got the length of Caerphilly. Mm -hmm. So then you've got, that's the container now. So the rest of the story, you can kind of see where they mm -hmm. fit mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. it. Um, and then the final story, which is kind of an alternate version of Caerphilly, it kind of made sense. That came up the end. I thought you mm -hmm. could put it in the middle and really disrupt it, but it, that I think it would be too confusing. And then there was a sense of mood as well. Um, I hadn't realised that some people found the story suppressing. I thought they were hilarious. Um, and so my editor did suggest bringing one with a slightly happier ending, a little bit, a little bit more forward into the collection, the third or fourth story, so that um, there's a bit of hope given at the start. So people would go on thinking, oh, there might be hope somewhere else as well. <laughs> but, but also then, um, you know, you'd, it's, again, it's expectations. You know, there's a story where someone tears off her face and then something you're like, well, anything can happen now. Mm -hmm. That's the hope, you know, like, if, if he thinks he's allowed to do that, then in this next story. And I like kind of, that was fun yeah. to play with. Yeah. Your editor also suggested that the collection, as she uh, received it first, mm. it, it was a story short. Yeah. What was the, the extra story that the final complete? It was a final That's story. Okay. Um, I'd been attempting to write it for a very long time and couldn't get at it. And at the time, my agent was heavily pregnant. And she said, you, we can submit the book now with nine stories, or you can wait until after I've had the baby 
if I come back. <laughs> and I was like, right, we'll just submit it as nine. And I, all, all the while I was working on this 10th story and somehow my editor just could sense it was lacking mm-hmm. something. And she's absolutely right. Is Which is very different then to try and write a story knowing yeah. the book was going to be published. Mm. And I always kind of say, the first book you kind of write in innocence. It's not with the notion that it's going to be published or received. But then suddenly I know it's going to be published and you start to second guess yourself and you're like, oh, shit. Mm. And also there was a time limit then. It had to be done by this point. And my method is, as I've explained, it's quite messy. I'll go off on avenues, I'll bring it back. So that was a different thing, which was some preparation for trying to write the second book, which I'm trying to do now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, but I'm very grateful for it. And I think it makes a lot more sense in that story in the... I just wonder, is there um, a sense if you're putting a collection together that one story has to kind of stand out or kind of, I don't know, um, indicate ambition or whatever, possibly beyond the confines of the short story form? I'm thinking of Colin Barrett's Young Skins, and there's one standout story in it, which is more like a novella. Um, So was Nosta, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, was that... um, I don't know, um, a w- marker, if you like, it w- for... It wasn't really... Um, no, it's... it's, it's <laughs> um, I kept thinking of it like an album, and I was thinking, I don't want any filler. I don't want the track which people skip, <laughs> you know? And I, and, I, and I don't do that. So I kept thinking, and in my head, it was like, they're all singles, they're all banging singles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and then you talk to people, and they go, mm, I think that might be a filler. <laughs> no, but that was really intriguing to me as well. I just realised that people I talk to, kind of each person has a different a favourite story. And I was like, oh, no, you're wrong. Like, the best story is this one, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And I realised how people receive is very different. Um, but, yeah, the final story is kind of, you know, there's a supernatural element. It's twice as long as the others. So I could see how it could be perceived as that is what I was trying mm-hmm. to do. But unwittingly, I realised I was kind of pushing on the edges. And I realised what you can't do in a story, or at least what I couldn't do. I wasn't technically proficient in the end. Or I felt that I was pushing on the boundaries of stories you talk about with about a moment of change. You know, that's one great definition of stories, but a moment of change. And then what I was trying to do there was deal with the repercussions of that change and how one person's change affects someone else. I mean, how they respond in turn to that. And then there's, you, have this chain, you have a chain of change. And I thought, and a story is very hard because you're trying to get time passing, you're trying to have these all different arcs. And I realised then you're heading into novel territory there. And so it's less about... So, yeah, so I mean, it is about length, but it's also about what you're trying to write about, kind of thematically. So the novel I'm writing now, it starts at a moment of change, right at the very beginning, first page, and then it's hopefully will explore the repercussions and the repercussions of the repercussions. So it, in some way, writing it, made me see where I needed to go next. Mm. But it wasn't a deliberate thing going into it. Is the novel still about a substitute goalkeeper? No. No? no. Is he abandoned? He's, he'll, 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 he'll forever be on the bench. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, no, um, no, the idea was I was going to write this really... It was all about being second best and we can all relate to this feeling. And also there's nothing more absurd than being a substitute goalkeeper. If you're a substitute striker, you're going to get on at some point. There was, I think, Steve Harper at Newcastle was on a bench for 10 years. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? And you're getting paid at a premiership. You get paid £40,000 a week. Mm. You go to training and you're just like, you know, like, I, might have, I, might, I might have a curry tonight. I'm not going to get on anyway. You know, you just kind of, 
sitting back at the end. Um, and I tried to write it, and, and I wanted it at, at the lower level. Why am I talking about a novel I'm never going to write? But anyway, here we are, yeah. Um, and I wanted it to be tragicomic, and this, you know, but I just couldn't. In the end, I just didn't care enough, for whatever reasons, my things I was interested in changed by the time I was getting to it. Um, and, and the place was a thing as well. I didn't quite know where to place it. And now this story just came to me recently and I've started it and it's in Kefili again. Um, and this time one, one of the characters is a train conductor and he's on the valley lines, which goes right from the top of Romney Valley all the way down to Cardiff, which is now a journey. So I thought we can give it a little bit more breadth mm-hmm. to it now. Um, and I'm kind of excited by it again, so that's, yeah. Okay, great. We've done a lot of um, um, articles in the course of the, the book club, the month. I just much. wondered, is there, was there one standout observation or whatever <laughs> that um, chimed with you or that made you think differently about, about your own work? God, what a question to ask an egomaniac. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I think what I just hadn't, realized was that people would pick up on the things that I was caring about and in terms of the the small moments and the small moments of warmth between characters um I thought they'd kind of get overlooked for the kind of the grand scheme of the stories mm. or the collections or the other events going on and they were important to me and also the this idea of capturing kind of psychological states and Philip Coleman picked up on that and that's one of the things I'm really interested in is just want to write about how it is, how things feel, how moments feel. And again, it's back to the Frank O'Connor thing, finding language, the right language to conjure that feeling. And then by the end, I was less interested in, say, social realism than like psychological realism. I wanted it to feel emotionally real, emotionally true. Mm. So to have some people pick up on that, that was kind of um, nice. But maybe I just told them what I wanted to do, so they... We're just reading that into it anyway, who knows? But um, no, and it's that's what's so odd and can be disconcerting when you're then trying to write the next thing because suddenly you're being told what your themes are, you're being told what your patterns are, and you're like, oh shit, are they my themes? And then I go to write and go, oh, I'm just doing the same theme again, you know? And you realize, well, you know, you can, a lot of writers just do that, but who, they are your themes. And often the first book you go to, a writer's first book, and you, that's where most of the things come from, from that. Mm. And you can spend a lifetime exploring it. Um, but it is odd, there's kind of... Unco- the unconscious stuff, the stuff you don't realise that driving the stories is often there. Like, anyway, and you picked up on the kind of... the absent fathers and stuff, you know, and I know my own dad has a lot to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Please let me tell you, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, Tom, thank you very much. Um, and thanks for taking part in the Irish Times um, book club. It's been great to hear your side of the story. Draw to a close then. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming this evening. Thank Tom for taking part and speaking so eloquently and to the Irish Writer Centre for hosting us. Thanks very much. <laughs>